Well, friends, good morning. Welcome to our time of gathered worship as the community of Fellowship Church. The Lord be with you. Today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. If you're not familiar with what Lent is, it's a season of preparation for the celebration of Easter. It's 40 days, not counting the Sundays, and has symbolism rooted in Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness. We gathered together as a community this past Wednesday evening, and we received ashes on our foreheads as a reminder of our mortality and our dependence upon God. And as we enter this season, it's important to remember that Lent is not about feeling badly about ourselves or wallowing in guilt and shame. Instead, it is an opportunity to create space for what matters, to assess what we have maybe become over-dependent upon. It's sort of like a spring cleaning of the soul, opening ourselves to a greater awareness of our dependence upon God and trusting in the goodness of God to sustain us in the wilderness. It is meant to be a spacious time. And though perhaps a bit more introspective, it is also a season in which Christians for centuries have intentionally engaged the practice of reaching out in acts of mercy to others. It is a time of heightened awareness of our need for mercy, a time for receiving mercy, and a time of extending mercy. Not surprisingly, we will repeat the phrase, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, many times in our worship together. And friends, the good news is that our Lord is more eager to extend mercy than we are even to ask for it. As we lean into focusing on the crucified one as Lord, you may notice on your bulletin cover that is shifted. We are continuing through the gospel of Mark. Curios is what we were calling it. Uh, somebody in the last service asked me to explain a little bit more that the Kyrie is linked to Kyrios. It is Lord. So when we sing Kyrie, laison, it is another form of that Greek word Kyrios that means Lord. Um, so as we do that, Lord have mercy, Kyrie laison, Christe laison. We pray that that's our prayer during Lent, not only for us, but for those um, in the world that need God's mercy. I also just want you to notice that our gallery has been changed over and has focused on some global depictions of the crucifixion. It has been super enriching to curate and find those images. And we really pray that as you engage it and as um, things are added to it with explanations that you will also find it to be um, deeply formative to reflect on the crucifixion. Friends, our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 63. Would you stand and let's hear these words together. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Let's sing together.
Friends, you may be seated. Friends, each Sunday throughout the Lenten season, we will extinguish one candle. Um, and as we do so, we're doing it to follow Jesus um, to his death. Um, and so one candle per week up until Holy Week where we will extinguish the Christ candle. But don't worry, because on Easter Sunday morning, we will step into the joy of the resurrection and we'll light the Christ candle again. So why extinguish a candle every week? I think it's a very tangible reminder that as we make the trek toward the cross, um, that we do so following the Christ, um, following the Christ who would die for us. And in doing so, we step into the death, um, the death of, of our Savior by dying to ourselves. But not just dying to ourselves because we're human, dying to ourselves precisely because the sin and the brokenness and the selfishness um, of this world has entangled itself around our humanity. And so we die. Each week, tangibly, we take the time to extinguish a candle and to die to self, um, but ultimately, ultimately to look forward to resurrection hope. Um, when we, um, when we let go of the, or when we relinquish, so to speak, the lesser lights in our lives and the lesser loves in our lives, um, we do so in a way that almost like opens us up to the greater light, the ultimate light that is Jesus Christ and the promise of the gospel and the promise that he will shine a light into the darkest places of our hearts and the darkest places of our lives and even the darkest places of our world. So this morning, I invite you to pray with me. I'll do the one, and I invite you to say the words under all. Pray with me. O oh God, in the season of Lent, help us to examine our attachments and to follow your invitation to live more simply and deeply with you. Teach us to die to our world's broken ways of succeeding, that we may see how the crucified one is Lord. Teach us to die to the appetites and needs that drive us into taking and having and wanting more than we need. Teach us to die with you, O Christ, that we may rise with you and live in your abundance in life. Teach us to take up our cross and follow you. As we place our feet on the road to Easter and walk the way that you have walked before us. Amen.
at this time I invite you to stand and we are learning another song this Lent um, called the Kyrie Eleison. You can stand. Um, if you learn best by reading music, there are copies of this music out by the bulletins um, and we'll be singing it uh, throughout the season of Lent. So um, it's definitely worth your time to, to learn it. Um, and this is really based on, again, the Kyrie and um, extending mercy to others even as we receive mercy. So let's sing and learn it together.
brothers and sisters in Christ, it is because of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have peace with God and also with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. You may exchange the sign of peace with those around you as you are comfortable and able. Good morning, fellowship. Good morning, fellowship. Here you guys are. <laughs> um, my name's Tierra. If I've not yet met you, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, um, or maybe you're just simply curious about that mission and you want to get to know us a little bit better as a community, um, there are cards in the back that look like this, our connection cards. You can pick one up from one of the tables in the back, um, and then you can put your name and contact information on it. But you can also take it over to the Welcome Center, and there's some really, really great folks, um, and I do mean this, some really great folks, some really friendly folks over there who would love to meet you and greet you by name and help you to get to know us a little bit better, too. Um, a couple things for us this morning. First, we are um, celebrating, if you will. Uh, we just did our, as Jess mentioned earlier, our Ash Wednesday service a couple days ago, um, kicking off the Lenten season, the trek toward um, the cross and also Easter Sunday. And so a couple of, of um, images from, from that night, really, really fun night, really great way to begin this season. And a special thanks to um, all of the teams um, who made that happen, um, our, our AV sound team, our worship team, um, and also our community night meal team who pivoted um, away from our traditional meal on a Wednesday night and toward um, a penitential, somebody said a penitentiary meal, and it's like, no, it's not a prison meal. Adjacent, adjacent, um, but a penitential meal of soup and, um, and bread. So uh, thank you for all of those teams who made that happen. So now that our feet are firmly planted in the Lenten season, we are kicking off um, this season our uh, Love Your Neighbor Lenten Mercy Challenge. Um, we did a few of these practices last year, um, last year and same as this year, uh, rooted in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, um, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Um, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Uh, and for whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me, your Savior. Uh, so to help us step into um, a couple of those practices this season um, with the church all over the world and over the course of hundreds of years who have practiced these practices, uh, Reverend Skipper, who's not sitting over there anymore, uh, has curated, <laughs> wherever he is, um, has curated three three practices of mercy for us um, this season, three mercy projects, and we're asking you to consider adopting one of those projects. Uh, so for the next six weeks, um, one of three, feeding the hungry with our local part, uh, mission partner hand-to-hand -hand, or 
housing the houseless with our local mission partner, uh, Habitat for Humanity. We've got several uh, building days. Uh, and then clothing the naked with our local mission partner, Community Action House. Uh, so there's more details in your bulletin about those, but they're pretty straightforward. It's collecting and packing snack packs, it's building a house, and it's also you know, donating clothing items. But uh, here's the catch. Uh, we're not just asking you to love your neighbors through one of these three mission projects. Uh, we are also asking you to invite your neighbors and your classmates and your colleagues and your friends and your extended family into this project with you. Uh, so out at the Welcome Center are invitations for each of those things um, and also door hangers for each of those things uh, as opportunities for you to invite other folks to connect to this grand mission, um, this grand mission of ours. Um, service and mercy are a great excuse to connect with people uh, around you and to help them take a step toward Jesus. Uh, so you can sign up either online um, or at the Welcome Center. You can also pick up invitations and door hangers to share with people in your life. But either way, either way, we are super grateful to um, just have the chance to step into mercy practices with you this season. Uh, lastly, uh, this Wednesday night, we are kicking off our uh, love, Loving Our Muslim Neighbors Well class. Uh, this class is being led by Reverend Dr. John Hubers. Uh, John Hubers is a recently retired, I mean so recent that the ink is still wet, like as in like a couple weeks ago, uh, recently retired RCA missionary who uh, spent decades in Bahrain and Oman. Uh, specifically learning to love our Muslim neighbors in those places, um, getting to know them, um, getting to know their stories, getting to know their faith traditions and practices, um, and then learning how to extend Christ and the mission of Christ and the message of Christ and the gospel to um, them in particular. And so uh, he's harnessed a lot of expertise and wisdom in that area, and he's coming to join us for three weeks uh, to talk to us about what it looks like to be in relationship with Muslim neighbors um, and also how to extend Jesus to our Muslim neighbors too. Uh, and if you didn't already know him from classes that he's taught and lectures that he's give, given um, and his missionary work, maybe you know him because Bryce Vanderstelt just told me this last week, uh, he is famous in Pella, Iowa, for his portrayal of Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. There you go. So he's an actor as well as, like, <laughs> as, well as a missionary. So hope you'll join us for that. You can sign up in um, a church center app for that. Um, as always, there are a million things, a million and one things happening here at our community um, and through our community here at Fellowship. And we are so grateful so grateful for the many ways that this congregation continues to um, live um, generously, but also give generously to the mission of this church and through the mission of this church as faithful followers of Jesus. So uh, if you have yet to partner with us financially, you can still do so through the giving bowls in the back or through um, online or through mail. You can even mail things. Um, and with that, um, our youths, three years through fifth grade, uh, you are uh, welcome to follow Miss Betsy, to your classes, and the rest of us will remain here seated and singing. Thank you.
Well, friends, I invite you now to hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love, a story that might cause us to second guess what we think we know of the stories of Jesus. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, where it says this. In those days, when there was again a great crowd gathered without anything to eat, he, Jesus, called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come a great distance. And his disciples replied, How can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. And the disciples distributed it, and they distributed it to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after blessing them, he ordered these two should be distributed. Then all ate and were filled, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets in all. The number that was there was about 4,000 people that day. Then he sent them away, and immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many of you are scratching your head already thinking, uh, Pastor Ross, I think you read the wrong story today because Jesus feeds 5,000 people, not 4,000, right? How many of you are thinking that a little bit already? If that's you... Hold tight. The title of today's sermon is The Geography of Faith. And unfortunately, it's coming to you from a person who is directionally challenged, okay? So sorry about that. If we ever travel together, I should definitely not be the navigator. I have a bit of a dyslexia when it comes especially to east and west, and also to some particular months, like November and February. So happy November, everybody. (laughs) Despite my odd dyslexia, I do want to spend a little time considering geography this morning, though. So which way's north? Yes, I see it right there. Tricked ya. I'm thinking about a map. So we're going to go north as up. Okay? I can, I can do that. Never eat, eat, <laughs> soggy wheat. Whatever. As the realtors are fond of saying, it's all about location, location, location. And so it is in the Gospel of Mark today, and I hope you'll see it with me. But to get us in the mood, let's do some of our own little geography lessons here, our own preferences, especially east and west. We're Michiganders, right? So what's better, the east side of the state or the west side of the state? Yeah, no kidding. On the east side of the state, we have the major universities. University of Michigan, Michigan State University, there's Lake Huron, Detroit Motor City is there. But on the west side, I mean, come on, we got Lake Michigan. We've got Hope and Calvin. We've got, what else do we have? Tulip Time. (laughs) Fellowship Church. I mean, come on. How about this? In Holland, what's better? the north side or the south side? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Those are fighting words. (laughs) 
Just as we are passionate in our own directionality around our local place, so I hope you also see the geography of faith as it unfolds in the Gospel of Mark today. And so I have behind me a map that is of the Holy Land at the time of Jesus. And the two things I want you to see first, two of the most prominent things, are the two seas. There is way up north, the Sea of Galilee, and then way down south, the Salt Sea. And these two are quite different. Fitting to the stories of Jesus even, up north at the Sea of Galilee, it is abundant life up there, and the sea itself is full of fish, and the vegetation all around is green and lush. Down south, however, at the Salt Sea, which is otherwise called the Dead Sea, it's dead. There's no fish in the sea. There's no vegetation around it. It's actually the lowest point on earth. It's a, quite a fascinating geographical metaphor for us, actually. And there's really kind of all the difference in the world between the up north sea and the down south sea. With that in mind, let's map the Gospel of Mark together, okay? Because the Gospel of Mark is surprisingly geographical. Okay, so if you were to grab a Bible and pinch the Gospel of Mark, you'd be pinching 16 chapters. Okay, there's 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Exactly half is eight, chapter eight. And get this, the first eight chapters of Mark happen almost exclusively up north. And some of you are saying, now wait a minute, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that's down south. That's true. But there's no birth narrative in Mark's gospel. There's no Christmas story in Mark's gospel. It's all up north for those first eight chapters. Then there's a couple transition chapters where he's moving south. And then Mark chapter 11 through 16 are all down in the deep south by the Dead Sea in the place where it's mostly dead. And this is significant. So notice, up north, many of the great things happen up there. Up north, Jesus is magnetic. We've explored these stories recently. Up north, the crowds gather around Jesus and they want desperately to be near him. Up north, the only thing that's really threatening Jesus's life up there is that the crowds are gonna crush him because they want to be so close by him. Up north, miracles abound. Up north, the people generally love Jesus because he's what they want him to be. He's a great teacher. He's a healer. He's a miracle worker. He's a multiplier of bread, as in our story today. Down south is quite different. Down south is where popularity is lost. Down south is where opposition grows. Down south is where Jesus will be denied by his closest friends. Down south is where God in the flesh gets spit in the face. Down south is where all the littler miracles stop and the big miracle starts. And down south is bad news before it is good news. In between, however, all of this up north excitement and the down south drama, there is this journey downward. And in Mark's gospel, this is important, the high water mark, which is a pun, the high water mark in Mark, isn't that punny, right? The high water point is Peter's confession of Christ. It happens at Caesarea Philippi where he says, you, Jesus, you are the Christ. 
And it's a wonderful declaration at that particular moment. Peter ends up being only the second human being, only the second person in Mark's gospel to properly identify Jesus. And it happens only three times in Mark's gospel. It happens once at the very beginning. It happens once in the dead center, chapter 8. And it happens once near the end of the story. The other references you may remember are from supernatural beings like God the Father or from demons who are inside other people, or Jesus speaking of his own self. But otherwise, it's humans three times in Mark's gospel who say that Jesus is either the Christ or the Son of God. The first one is the thesis statement of the gospel, right at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But that's the narrator speaking, so it's almost like cheating. You have to jump all the way to the halfway point to get the next human who identifies Jesus properly. It's Peter, way up north in the land of abundance by the Sea of Galilee, where he says, you, Jesus, you are the Christ. And then it doesn't happen again until we get all the way down south with a Roman soldier, a centurion, standing at the foot of the cross who sees God in the way that Jesus dies. And he finally says, surely this man is the Son of God. The thesis statement of Mark then doesn't become fully fleshed out until we go all the way up north and all the way down south. It becomes a 50-50 split almost for the gospel of Mark entirely and a journey from up top to down low, a journey from truly living into truly dying. And up north is the happy, clappy place of, of comfortable Christianity where we mostly get the things that we want from Jesus Down south is the more uncomfortable place where we are challenged to follow Jesus wherever he leads, even if it is unto a cross. Okay, we've mapped Mark, and we have a big vertical line going from north to south. Now we're going to map Jesus. And in Mark's gospel especially, Jesus is also surprisingly geographical. Before Jesus makes the big move from north to south, he's recurringly making this move from east to to west and back again. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Mark carefully, you'll come across this line, the other side, the other side, the other side, happens over and over and over again as Jesus bounces back and forth on each side of the Sea of Galilee, and abundant life is abounding up there. The west side over here is Jesus' hometown. This is Jewish territory. This is the us People. This is a place of familiarity. The east side is the opposite of that. It's Gentile territory. It's the place of the pagans. It's the not us people. It's those other ones, the ones who are among the pigs, if you remember the story from just a few weeks ago. But Jesus is bouncing back and forth from one place to the other. And the things that he does over here, he ends up doing similar things over here. Mark chapter 8 alone, this middle point, has multiple jumpings back and forth also, where Jesus starts over on the one side. He starts in the Decapolis. Then he goes over to the other side to Dalmanutha. And then he goes back to Bethsaida before he goes all the way up north to Caesarea Philippi. It's like my old, my dad's dad joke. It's literally from my dad. It's a dad joke, for real. My dad would say, here's the joke. Pete and repeat, get into a boat and go to the other side with Jesus. Pete and Jesus, get out. Who's left? Okay. 
Pete and repeat get into a boat and they go to the other side with Jesus. Pete and Jesus get out. Who's left? How much time do you have? (laughs) I hope you see it though. This movement of Jesus from east to west, back and forth to the other side, ends up being a horizontal line that goes on top of the vertical line already drawn. And we see the cross of Christ literally put over this whole geographical region. Jesus is literally demonstrating with his own life, the way that he moves, that he is not only for me and for my people, for my tribe, for my political party, for my denomination, but he's also for the other side, the people over there. And the main thesis statement of Mark's gospel isn't complete until Peter starts it and the Roman centurion finishes it. I did that backwards. Other sides, sorry. But Jesus is also for those people on the other side, the insiders and the outsiders alike. And this is the context of the miracle that we have for today, right? So if you're thinking this is a duplicate miracle, you're right. It has already happened, and that's why it's confusing. It already happened over here. The feeding of the 5,000 happens in the Jewish territory in Jesus' hometown, and it's a wonderful thing. The feeding of the 4,000, what we read today, happens over here, and now it's in that other place in the Decapolis among the Gentiles. Notice what's similar and different about these. I I put it on a chart so you can see it. There's a lot of similarities between these stories. Both miracles happen in a deserted place. Both miracles mention the compassion that Jesus has on the crowd. Both tell of Jesus praying. Both are a miracle of bread multiplied. Both conclude with abundant leftovers, and both stories tell that the whole crowd ate and was satisfied. That's wonderful. But on this side, on the west side, in the hometown place, it's a Jewish setting. And the reason that Jesus has compassion on that crowd is because they have failed religious leadership. The compassion is based on the fact that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. On that side, Jesus prays a more traditional Jewish prayer, an insider's type of prayer. On that side, the bread that starts is a five count. There's five loaves representing the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. almost missed Numbers. And then it ends with 12 basketfuls left over, representing the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 disciples of Jesus. Again, similar to insider language. And it's a 5,000-person crowd, but only the men are counted, which is curiously exclusive. On the other side, however, it's the same miracle, except it's happening in the Gentile region. And now the compassion that Jesus has is based on a humanitarian crisis. These people are going to die if they don't get food. The place is even more remote. The prayer that Jesus offered is more broad, a thanksgiving prayer, kind of similar to the one that we would offer at the table here. The miracle of the bread, the amount of loaves that you start with and the baskets left over is this number seven, seven being wholeness number. Obscure biblical reference pointed to the seven pagan nations mentioned in the Old Testament representing all the other people or the seven deacons appointed in the book of Acts who are sent out to all the other people. And the end number is 4,000, but it's 4,000 total. Men, women, and children all counted together. And that number four itself might represent the four corners of the earth or the four points of a compass 
or even the ways that the four winds blow throughout the whole wide world. Can you feel the energy with these two miracles? I hope you can. I mean, it's wonderful. Jesus is the bread of life, and he is first so for the ones on this side, for the insiders. How wonderful. And it is abundant. And Jesus is also the bread of life for the folks over on this side, too. How wonderful. Point number one that I hope you see is that Jesus is doing the same thing in a different place and for a different group of people. His arms are open wide. Point number two, I hope you realize, sometimes less is more. Now, we might think that the second miracle is not as cool because it's not first. And it's also less spectacular, technically, numerically. The crowd is smaller in the first place, and the leftovers are less, too. Numerically, it's less spectacular, but also sometimes less is more because it's this second, less spectacular miracle by which Jesus extends his arms, not only this way, but also this way, not just to some people, but to all people, the ones also on the other side. So now we've mapped Mark, we've mapped Jesus. I want to try to get personal with you just a minute and invite you to map yourself Let's map you or map me. Where do you fit in this geography of faith? Maybe you're an insider. Maybe you've been born and raised in the faith. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you've received a Christian education. Maybe you go to church sometimes even twice on Sunday. Maybe you already know many of the things of God, even if Jesus is sometimes a puzzling character. Maybe you're on this side, you're an insider. Or maybe you're on this side. Maybe you're an outsider. Maybe you're joining us through the cameras from somewhere else because you don't quite feel like you belong here yet. You didn't grow up in a Christian home. You haven't read the Bible cover to cover. You don't know how to pray. Religious people sometimes treat you like you don't belong. Or maybe it just feels that way sometimes. Whichever side you're on, Really, ultimately, we all get invited far up north with Jesus to this northern place where he has an important question to ask us. And he starts with a lob ball. He starts easy. The first question is, who do other people say that I am? It's always easier to talk about what other people say, to share the talk of the town. So-and-so says this. But then he gets real serious. He looks you right in the eye, me too. And he says, who do you say that I am? How would you fill in that blank? At Fellowship Church, over the past few years, I hope this is familiar by now, we've been saying Jesus is for us our Lord and our Savior, our teacher and our friend. And it's true, but I can't say it for you. You gotta fill in the blank yourself. And I hope this is familiar too. We've sometimes talked about those four titles of Jesus on a, as a wheel that goes bump. A wheel that goes bump. You're invited to picture each one of those four things, Lord, Savior, Teacher, and Friend, as like a spoke, four spokes on a wheel. And then rate yourself, your relationship to Jesus, on a 10 scale in each of those categories. If you have zero of those things, then you have no spokes and no wheel. If Jesus is all of those things for you on a 10 out of 10 scale, you have a lot of confidence and a really big wheel. 
if Jesus is maybe some of those things for you or inconsistently each, well, then you probably have a wheel that goes bump. And of course, in the Gospels, Jesus is presented as all of these things for us, and he is to be increasingly so each. But I think the real story of real life for most of us, including me, is that we all have a wheel that sometimes goes bump. You might say to Jesus, you are my savior. Thanks for the salvation, but I'm going to go ahead and go live my life now, my life, my way now. I'll see you when I die. He's not your Lord. He's not your friend. Or maybe you look to Jesus as a teacher and you'd say, yeah, he's a really great teacher. He's, he's like Aristotle or Augustine or Aquinas, but, but he's not my teacher. He's just a teacher. How do you fill in that blank? If you have a wheel that sometimes goes bump, well, then you're in good company in the Gospel of Mark because the disciples recurringly don't get it. They miss it over and over and over again. And even when we get to the high water mark where Peter finally gets it, the story then starts to just go flat afterwards as Jesus begins to journey south, which is what we're seeking to do with him now in this journey called Lent. So let's take one more minute to map Lent together. It starts way up north with Peter, where he makes this great confession that you are the Christ. It's like us looking to Jesus and say, you are for me, Lord and Savior, teacher and friend. And then Jesus responds by saying, shh. That's what he says to Peter after Peter makes the great confession. And Jesus says, first, first, follow me. And Jesus starts going south, literally, geographically, spiritually, socially. He says, if you want to live, you got to learn to die first. If you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. And if you want to really follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and then follow me. So get this. Mark's gospel has approximately 22 miracles in it, miracles of Jesus. Guess how many of those miracles happen way up north in the abundant life space? 20 of them. Almost all of them happen way up north. It's a place of all the good feelings. The great things happen up there. And then Jesus begins his journey south. And it will be an uncomfortable, difficult, costly embarrassing journey that moves from north to south, from a triumphalistic kind of yippee faith into the upside-down realization, the upside-down claim that the crucified one is Lord. And the key phrase for this whole journey from north to south is on the way. Mark uses this phrase at least nine times on this journey from north to south. When the miracles stop happening and the ridicule starts happening, Jesus says, follow me on the way. When the crowds stop gathering to praise and start gathering to kill, Jesus says, follow me on the way. When the disciples start jockeying for positions of prestige and power in the coming kingdom, Jesus says, stop it and start following me on the way. And if you jump ahead to the book of Acts, you'll find that before Christians were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. 
before Christianity became an organized religion. The Jesus people were the ones who were known for taking the Jesus way in the world. And it just might be that the first time a person was actually called a Christian in Antioch, it was derogatory. It was ridicule. You're such a Christian. You're just like him. In our gallery, there's an image that might stop you in your tracks. I hope it does. It's one of the earliest depictions of Christ crucified. It's hard to take in. It's open ridicule of Christians for following Christ, just as Jesus warned would happen. It's carved into stone, and it's the image of a man worshiping Jesus on a cross, only Jesus has a donkey's head. And that's the nice way to say it. The subtitle says, Alexamos worshiping his God. He's a follower of the way, and it's costly. I had the opportunity just recently to be at the Calvin Worship Symposium, a great conference, and I went to one of the breakout sessions, which was about the top 25 most popular Christian songs used in Christian worship, the ones put forth by the four biggest bands in the megachurches nowadays, Elevation, Passion, Hillsong, and Bethel. Experts go on to study these particular songs, and they they notice a great variety of Christian theology and practice named in the songs, but there's something noticeably missing from them. Any guess what it is? The cross. It seems that even today we're embarrassed by the way that our leader lived and died. Now, Easter's great. I love Easter. Can't wait to get to Easter. But the cross comes first. And questions remain. Questions remain. Why did Jesus have to die? Or maybe better, why did this world want so badly to kill him? Was it my sin that put him there? Or is it better to speak of the cross as love? We don't have to have all the answers to begin following Jesus on the way. His disciples certainly didn't have them all from the start. But today is Lent 1. And the invitation today is to follow Jesus on the way from up north to down south until we finally see that the crucified one is Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, in this season of Lent, we might be tempted to look away from the cross. It is uncomfortable. But in our response this morning to what we have heard, um, we are going to intentionally survey the wondrous cross. I invite you to remain seated and let's sing together.
Well, speaking of heading down south, taking the way of Jesus and sacrificing a little bit of their own in time and resources, uh, there's a group of 13 people heading to Nicaragua on Wednesday. Uh, Their names are on the board behind me. We're going to be in Nicaragua for six days. And because this is such a good and robust group, we actually get to see both of our mission partners. We have two organizations, one on the Caribbean side, uh, Tabitha's house, and then one up north in the mountains uh, called Sepad, and we're going to go and witness the work that God is doing in and through uh, these partners of ours. We're also hoping that in, with our physical presence and maybe uh, the help of some muscles as well, uh, our work might encourage these mission partners and the good work that they're doing. And also, uh, by God's grace, we might uh, encounter meaningful relationships with them and the people that they serve. If your name is up here and you happen to be here at this service, I think you should stand up and we should give them a little bit of encouragement uh, before they head up. So if you are heading to Nicaragua, would you be willing to stand up and we can uh, give you a little juice? Let's go. Uh, A few of them are here this morning. We're also going to pray for them. So uh, if you uh, would like to, you guys can sit down and we'll extend a hand. To, to, if you're near them and feel comfortable putting your hand on a shoulder or just extend a hand over this way and we'll uh, pray for them as they head out and for all of us as we seek to do mercy in this world. Oh God, in your abundant mercy, you have given so much to us. You have rescued us when we are at our worst. You have sustained us. You sustain us even when we don't recognize it. And you are redeeming us into the way of your cross. For all you have done in and through us, we also confess we are still in need of you. 
Though we may have bread in our cabinets, too often our souls are hungry. Though we may be strong enough to choose our own way, too often we avoid your way. Though we have access to much, we rarely look for you. In our comforts, O God, we forget our need for your mercy, and we ask for your forgiveness. Once again, in your mercy, miraculously shape and form us as receivers of your grace, but also conduits of your grace into this world. Give us eyes to see, hearts to pursue, and hands to serve this world that you so love. And we pray that this might be especially true for these friends of ours heading to Nicaragua. In your mercy, give them an extra measure of your grace towards one another and towards all the people they encounter there. Give them attentiveness to the movements of your spirit. And most of all, O God, and the security of your love for us, Grant that we all, whether we're here or there, on this side or the other side, might love those around us with a cross-like love. It's in the assurance of that love that we know in Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing it together.
Friends, as you go from this place to heed the summons to take the Jesus way in the world, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Go in peace.